So let me read from Matthew 6, and uh, then I'm going to pray. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It is uh, great to be here, and we do, I know people probably say this, but we do regularly pray for you, and it's great to, uh, I think I was here probably six months ago, and um, great to see new faces, people I don't know, so let's get a chat after. It's um, good to uh, see God's blessing upon you here, and I love this new location, especially compared to your previous one. So much better, isn't it? Well, will you turn uh, your Bibles to Matthew 6, that passage that uh, Daniel read for us, commonly called the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. And as I do so, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of having it in our own mother tongue. We thank you that you gave the Spirit to inspire your word, and that same Spirit you have promised, will come and bring that word. Please, Lord, bring it to our minds and our hearts and our lives, we pray, that we might not be those people that James talks about, that look in the mirror of your word and go away and do nothing about it, but rather, having seen you in your word, may we be those who live evermore for your glory. Amen. I'm just going to say one word, and it's going to lay a huge guilt trip on you. The word is, you've guessed it, prayer, prayer. We all know we ought to pray. We all know it's a great thing to do. And yet we find it so hard. Why is it that I don't get distracted when I'm sat in front of the television watching a football game or whatever, or where I'm focused down on doing something that I'm interested in. But as soon as I come to pray... I find that 101 things begin to fill my mind and it's off there and oh, back again and off there and back again. Why is that? Well, the Bible tells us the reason for that. It is we're engaging in the most powerful thing on earth. As William Cowper, the hymn writer, put it, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. We find it hard because it's a battle. It is the battle of the Christian life. It is that which most affects the world in which we live, but we struggle to see that. I'm so grateful, therefore, that the disciples went to Jesus and said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus' reply has not only helped the disciples, the apostles, to pray, but it's helped countless generations and trust it helps us to pray as well. 
Jesus, of course, is the ultimate man of prayer. But I want us to see that the answer that he gives in these familiar words in Matthew 6, the answer he gives those disciples is the fact that praying, our praying, is essentially the same as his praying. There's certain things that you and I will never have to pray for that Jesus had to pray for. But that aside, there are things in common and his reply focus upon those things in common. The Lord's Prayer is the Lord's Prayer. Now Jesus often taught, as you know, by contrast. And he starts by giving us two ways not to pray. He cites two groups, the Pharisees and the pagans. And he says, don't pray as the Pharisees do, don't pray as the pagans do. The problem with their prayers is that they were essentially self-centred. The Pharisees wanted to make a, a parade of their prayers. They did it publicly. They wanted to be seen by people and thought well of people. What a religious person. What a godly person. Look at them on the street corner praying. They must have a special connection to God. It was all actually about them not about the God that they were supposedly praying to. Don't be like those, said Jesus. But don't be like the pagan, the pagan who thinks he's going to be heard because of his many prayers. If only we could stay up all night and pray, then God would really answer us, wouldn't he? Well, there's something of pagan about that, actually, because we think our much praying is going to bend God's ear. But what's the pagan doing? Exactly that. He wants to manipulate God and show God by his many words, by his, what Jesus actually calls it babbling, by his many words that he's really serious about this. But what he's really serious about is getting God to do his will. He's not serious about God's will. So don't be like those two groups and don't think you're not affected by it. You are affected by it, Christian. You are affected by it, disciples, he's saying. No. When you pray, to your Father in heaven, pray like this. Because prayer, at the end of the day, is not a religious exercise, it's a relational encounter. So Jesus here moves from the way not to pray to how to pray. And where does he start? He starts with those words that Daniel's already reminded us of, our Father in heaven. It's a reminder, isn't it, that prayer is not meditation, it's not thinking about ourselves. It's directed to somebody. It's directed to our Father in heaven. It's one-to-one -one communication. And look at the name that he gives, our Father in heaven. Our Father, you see, we're not simply forgiven, we are family. We're not simply accepted, we're adopted. The creator in heaven and earth isn't simply the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Father. He's our God and Father. And every time we pray, our Father in heaven, we are entering into that perspective, into that dynamic, into the privilege of knowing that we are God's sons and daughters. We are his family. I need to know that, you see, because that's my identity as a Christian. That's your identity as a Christian. It's not in our service, which so often we identify ourselves by in the, in the church. It's not in our service. It's in who I am in Christ. You see, the Pharisee's confidence was in his performance. As soon as he could no longer perform, that was shot. Sometimes we can be like the Pharisee. If 
only I could pray more, if only I and we're stopped from doing something, and we feel shocked, inadequate. That's not your identity. You are already a son and daughter of the living God. You're not a Pharisee, neither a pagan. The pagan, you see, his, his confidence was in his eloquence. No. Our confidence is in knowing the God who is our Father in heaven. Not simply our Father, but in heaven. This isn't just about intimacy. This is about humility and reverence. We're not just to name him, we are to honour him. Not just childlike trust, but awe and wonder. It's to stop us being flippant with God. It stops us from losing that sense of awe and wonder. We are coming before our Father in heaven, but he's also the king. He's the supreme lord of the universe. It's an old kind of adage, isn't it? It's a familiar kind of illustration, but how we would feel if we go to be presented to the queen. We'd pepper ourselves up and all the rest of it. We'd have a sense of occasion about it. And here's this glorious blend of intimacy, but don't lose the sense of awe and wonder and privilege. We come before our Father in heaven. How stupid of the pagan to think that he could manipulate or control God. How arrogant of the Pharisee to think that somehow he could perform in a way that would gain God's approval. Our Father in heaven. He's the God who runs the universe, but he's our Father. And it isn't just the starting point of our prayer. I'm so glad that Daniel did that. It was a brilliant children's talk. I'm going to borrow that, as we say, and I'm going to copy it. In the but do you know, how did it begin? How did it begin? King Dad. King Dad. How did it end? <coughs> King Dad, wasn't it? And that's right, the two bookends of the Lord's Prayer, it's all to do with the glory of God. It's all about God. This God who is the Lord of all the world. We're praying to this God. So as we come now to this prayer, I have actually divided this into half. I have actually halved the sermon, you'll be pleased to know, because it is a hot day. I am not without some compassion <laughs> as I get old. So you're going to have to ask me back a second time to do the second half of the prayer. So I'm just going to focus on the first three petitions, which are all to do with our relationship with God. There is this beautiful symmetry about the Lord's Prayer, isn't there? There are three, there's a focus on God and his glory, there's a focus upon us and our needs. But primarily, we need to recalibrate our minds and hearts to the God before whom we come, who is our Father in heaven. But there's a God-centeredness to this prayer that we need to recapture. And the essential first part of the prayer is a concern for God's glory. Hallowed be your name. Now, what gets you passionate? What do you get excited about? And as a bloke, I know what I can get excited about, and it's different things for us, but essentially it's our interests, our hobbies, and so on. And ladies, you're no different. You can get passionate about all sorts of things as well, can't you? Hallowed be your name is saying to us, get passionate about the name of your Father in heaven. 
See, Jesus starts by telling us what should drive our passion, and it is God's glory. That old word, hallowed, as you know, it simply means to, to give something its real value, its real worth. We speak in the sporting realms of the hallowed turf, meaning in past times Wembley Stadium or the home of our favourite football team. That's the hallowed turf where every Saturday worship takes place. And when the stadium is closed down, they cut up the thing into little sh cubes of uh, little slices of foot by foot of the turf and people pay lots of money for the hallowed turf. Whenever Jesus prays, he remembers his Father's name is holy. It's special. And he delights in declaring that. God's name is holy, but we don't always treat it in that way. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking God, Lord, please help us remember who you are. Please keep us from dishonouring your name by indifference or ingratitude. You see, it's taking us away from ourselves to God himself. Now, we know the significance of names in the Bible. And when we start to meditate upon the name of God, doesn't it warm our hearts? Think of that uh, hymn of, was it Cowper or was it John Newton? How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. What does the name of Jesus conjure up for you? If you're a Christian, it conjures up all sorts of aspects, doesn't it? Of the love and the grace and the goodness and the patience and the sacrifice and the other person's centeredness. What's in a name? There's a great deal in a name. There's a great deal in a name. Hallowed be your name. What's in the name G-O-D? Well, actually, in the Bible, in the name of God, Elohim, he is Jehovah, he is the one who fills this universe, who's created everything that we see and feel and touch and all that we can't see and feel and touch. He is Lord of it all. Hallowed be his name. But how has he revealed himself? He's revealed himself not simply in the grandeur and the beauty and the marvel of creation, awesome though that is. He's particularly revealed himself in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Want to know what God is like? What's his name? His name, when he comes to earth, is Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. You see, when we begin to meditate on God's name, surely our affections are stirred. Our perspective is changed. But it doesn't stop there, does it? If we pray like that, if we ourselves are stirred and moved and thrilled and warmed by the name of God, it then leads immediately to praying for his kingdom to come. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. What is God's kingdom? It seems slightly odd to pray this prayer when we believe as good evangelicals in God's sovereign rule extending over the entire creation. So even as Daniel prayed earlier on, we, we recognize even the backcloth of all the events that are happening in our nation. As Daniel prayed, we can sleep at night. I well, hope we can, because God is in control. And we need to remind ourselves as Christians that perhaps some of the things of the last month or so that have affected us are the norm for Christians in many parts of the world every day. 
and we make much of it, rightly so in a way, but actually for our brothers and sisters in many parts of the world, this is the norm that they live with. And yet against that backcloth, what are we praying for? When it seems that God has lost control, no, he hasn't. He is sovereign and we pray for his kingdom to come. But of course, we're to pray like this because there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, many of whom, hundreds, we're going to rub shoulders with this week. Our neighbours, our colleagues at work, our friends, who do not acknowledge his kingdom, who live as if they are king of the world and their little world. And this prayer is for the extension of God's kingdom. One of the things that struck me coming into uh, doing this job with London is in London it's a very interesting scene, Christian-wise. It's reckoned that 3% of the population nationally are Christians. By that meaning people who really trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. 3%. That means 97% aren't. It's massive, isn't it? We are a small, small minority. In London, the figure doubles, interestingly enough. Do you know why? Have a guess. Why is that 6 or 7% in London are reckoned to be Christian? The black churches. Yeah, so it's the black churches. So... God has brought to London in previous generations, Afro-Caribbeans, and they are the thriving churches. Sadly for many of them, they've kind of lost sight of the importance of the Bible, but numerically, they are by far the biggest. But as you get to know some of these different groups and so on, you realise that very often, though we're surrounded by this massive need, we can be very tribal. It becomes about our little empire when actually it should be about the kingdom of God. So let's plant a church. If it's not in our image, it doesn't matter. Let's help plant a church in that housing estate. So what if they've got a slightly different doctrine than us? They love the Lord Jesus Christ. So what if they're charismatic? So what if they're Pentecostal? You see, we need to move out of a tribalism and be kingdom-focused, not empire-focused. And when Jesus says pray like this, he's saying pray that the kingdom will come, that to the lives of people that we will rub shoulders with this week, the kingdom of God will come. The king will be loved and honoured and obeyed. He is in control. He is still ruler of the world. But we want thousands more to acknowledge that. How easily we get wrapped up, don't we, in our ministry, our church, our kingdom. And this prayer lifts us above all that. One of the things, I'm probably like John, getting a grumpy old man, so you have to excuse me. <laughs> Not that he's getting a grumpy old man, of course. <laughs> but if you read his blog, you know that he is getting a grumpy old man. <laughs> is that you can begin to see things as you travel around. You know one of the things that concerns me most about the church, about our churches, is that, as a friend of mine puts it, when it comes to prayer, we're into the organ recital. What occupies the prayer concerns of many churches represented on a Sunday is the organ recital. What's that, you say? It's praying for our legs or our failing organs or our broken bones or <laughs> all these organs of the body. It's an organ recital for dear Aunt Edna. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for dear, pray for dear Aunt Edna, 
But actually, if we align ourselves with the Lord's Prayer, surely there's got to be, especially in our coming together as the people of God, that primary focus upon the kingdom of God. What is God doing in the world? Lift our eyes to see that. He hasn't come primarily so that we can get cured from this or that or the other thing or prolong our life another ten years when heaven and eternity awaits us. No, he's come that the lost should be saved. How are the lost going to be saved? Through, look around, through you and I, this group of motley people that we are. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to bring the gospel, to extend his kingdom. And when we come to pray, we should be praying for the extension of this kingdom, for other churches in other places that are witnessing. Churches abroad, what God is doing there, lift our horizon away from ourselves. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his glory. It's all about his kingdom. Pray, our kingdom, your kingdom, come. We long to see the gospel spread. We long to see the opportunity for people to be converted. A terrible fire this week. I was reading a thing this morning. It was actually listing floor by floor the people that had been killed. Yeah, it was astonishing. It was like the United Nations. The United Nations. And the United Nations live in London. But how many of those folk will actually hear the gospel? Lord, your kingdom come. How's it going to come? It's through people like you and I praying about it. And you know what happens when we pray? You know this, don't you? You're often the answer to your own prayer. You've discovered that, haven't you? That when you pray about something, God often says, that's great, now you go and do it. <laughs> this is perhaps why we don't pray, as we ought to pray. But that's how it works, isn't it? That's why we need one another. By the way, you do know prayer is primarily corporate, don't you? We do so need one another to pray. As I said at the beginning, if you leave me to pray, after five minutes, unless I start verbalising it, which I tend to do all the time now anyway, or else I even lose my own thoughts, we need one another, don't we? Because it's hard to pray for ten minutes on your own. It's not hard to pray for half an hour with a group of two or three people, is it? And there's the one another's of the New Testament. We need one another to pray. And that's why the prayer meeting is such an important, vital part, central to the purposes of God in the life of a local church. And it's in that prayer, and in that prayer meeting, we pray your kingdom come, that God does his work. And very often, we're the answer to that prayer by either giving ourselves, our time, our money, whatever it may be. That's how God does it. And he's got thousands, tens of thousands of these little outposts all around, not only this country, but around the world. How's he do How's he work it? He's got this brilliant strategy of having groups of people like Epsom Emmanuel on the ground, a group of people serving a locality, reaching out into that locality. Your kingdom come. And the third petition, your will be done. Now, I don't know about you, but the biggest battle I face in life is a battle of the will. I face it all the time in every area of my life. I became a Christian about 50 years ago. I know you can't believe that. You don't, I know I don't look over 50, but uh, it's, it's true. And yet, after all these years, the one thing I've found is this. I want to be in control. Oh, I know God is my Father. I know he's sovereign. I've got countless examples of where 
He's answered prayer when he's moved in his providential wisdom to come to the rescue, to answer prayer, to initiate gospel work. I've, I've got a catalogue of it. Does it stop me tomorrow morning having the battle of the will? Not at all. It's part of the battle of prayer, isn't it? I want to be in control. Jesus says, not my will, but yours. And where did he say that? Well, as you know, he said that facing the gravest challenge of his life there in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, it's only when we begin to embrace God as our Father. I know you get this thing around saying you can't use the term Father for God because of all the bad fathers and so on. Well, that's rubbish, actually. Even if you had a bad father, you know what a good father is like. You aspire for a good father, don't you? And God is a perfect father. And knowing God to be our perfect heavenly father who numbers the hairs upon our head, that should encourage us day by day to say, your will be done. Because it's only as we do that that we'll bear with our trials and our, with patience. It's only as we delight in God as our Father that we will want to obey him. You see, Jesus' prayer is intensely personal, isn't it? For there was no one who rejoiced in his Father more than the Lord Jesus. There was nobody who wanted to hallow his name more than the Lord Jesus. There's nobody who's come to establish God's kingdom in a way more than the Lord Jesus. But there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he faced his greatest challenge, his biggest temptation, wasn't it? Suddenly, he has to pray for God's will to be done, though it's going to cost him everything. Staring into the cup of God's judgment, appalled by the prospect of drinking the bitterest of dregs, he doesn't shrink back. Rather, he submits to the Father's will. It wasn't done quickly, was it? For hours in agony in the garden, in ways that you and I can never imagine, he struggles with this. Is he going to do it? It's by no means a given. Is he going to do it? Is he going to allow himself to be taken, to be degraded, to be abused, to be whipped and tortured, to be humiliated, to be hung upon a cross? Is he going to do that? Father, if there's another way, show me. The answer comes back, son, there is no other way. You know that. Since the beginning of time, you've known that. This is the only way we're going to rescue this wayward, rebellious, sinful humanity. Well then, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The thought of facing the horrors of judgment, God's judgment, is beyond his wildest imagination. It's too much for him to bear. And yet, from the heart of that anguish, he cries out, Father, your will be done. There's the prayer, the beginning of it. Today is Father's Day. It's a commercial wonderland, isn't it? Whoever invented Father's Day? It had to be some entrepreneur somewhere or other. 
probably from America, although we tend to blame them for everything. So if you're American, I retract that comment immediately. But you know, friends, if you're a Christian, every day is Father's Day. Every day. Every day we wake up. My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Easy to say. We need the help of God by his Holy Spirit each day to implement it, to live it. I wonder where, as we live in the midst of a broken world, and as we have been entrusted with the gospel, I wonder where in your life, this past week, right now, you are struggling with this area of obedience. Maybe in the circumstances of your life, God has said, I want you to do this. I want you to go there. I want you to give that. I, whatever it may be. And we've been struggling with that, perhaps for weeks or months. We've been resisting it. We've been reworking it. We've been unbelieving. We've been afraid. He is your Father in heaven who has your best interest at heart. May God empower us, whatever our personal, individual circumstances, but also as a church, to say, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, the more we delve into this so-called Lord's Prayer, as we term it, we realize it's just about the hardest prayer we can ever pray. But we thank you that it was given to us by our Savior, our elder brother, our Lord. It was his prayer, he lived it. And we thank you, Father, that by the Holy Spirit you will empower us, not only to speak these words, but to live these words. Please help us in our weakness. Please help us in the individual challenges that we face where we're struggling to obey you. Lord, help us to stop doubting and believe and trust and discover that the Lord of all the universe, that for him it is nothing, absolutely nothing, to provide for his people, that you are no man's debtor. So Lord God, may we discover that as a church as well, that as we seek to reach out to this community, and all the challenges that, prevent, that presents to us, we ask, Lord, that day by day you would help us to be people of this prayer. Your kingdom come, Lord. In our brief day and generation that we have opportunity to serve you here on earth, as we pass on the gospel back into the next generation, to those youngsters who are in the Emmanuel Kids right now, Lord, how we covet them for Christ. Lord, may your kingdom come in their lives and in our lives. Amen.